Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you how it instructs us and teaches us, um, and even in these, these small, seemingly insignificant uh, places of the scriptures, um, we, we know and we trust um, that, that your word is, um, is inspired, and we, we trust that your word is sufficient. We trust that um, we, we are formed and shaped by your word, and so Lord, help us today um, to sit under it as our authority. Um, and to sit under it as, um, as your words um, written by men um, that have been written so that we may know who you are. And so, Lord, in it today, would you teach us the things that we need to know? Um, would you help us to become the things that we are not um, and the things that you call us to be um, and, and humble us um, under what your word teaches us today? In your name, amen. So we're in Matthew chapter one, verses one through 17. Um, and today is, is kind of a, of, a, of a fun undertaking because it is the, the first Sunday um, in, um, of, of, at, of the season of Advent, um, but we are also kicking off a, a new series through the book of Matthew. Um, and so it just happened, so happened to 
uh, to all come together in a perfect way. And so today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Uh, that, that song is, is a song written by a guy named Andrew Peterson. Um, it's just an amazing songwriter. And as you saw there, just pretty much put a tune to, to the song of Scripture. Sometimes we need to we need to have joy when we read the scriptures, right? We need to just read the scriptures with some, with some joy, um, with some, some fun. Um, and so I love that, that he did that for us. And so we're gonna work our way through this text. Um, we're not gonna hit every name. If you're like, oh my goodness, how are we going to get to every name? Uh, we're not gonna quite do that. In fact, the way that this book is set up, we're, man, I'm so excited about Matthew. The way that this book is set up, particularly in this first chapter, Um, really everything we need to know uh, that Matthew's trying to really communicate to us is found in this opening verse. So if you would, we're on uh, on page 807 in the book, the Bible's in front of you. Um, But if you haven't yet, please um, use your scripture, your your copy of the Bible um, to follow along this morning. And so everything we need to know, the writer of Matthew, I think, What he's trying to communicate is communicated in verse one. And this is what verse one says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so this not only sets up the chapter that follows, but I think the book that follows. I mean, Matthew is, this is a foundational statement to those who are reading and it's really important for us as we, as we venture through this gospel, it's really important for us that we see the gospels for what they are. The gospels are written as portraits of Jesus so that we would know who Jesus, from Na- Jesus of Nazareth really is. And, and this is how, right here, hold, everybody hold your copy up, even if it's a device, hold it up. This is how we know who Jesus is the written word of God. This is how we know Jesus, the written word of God. This is how the world came to know who Jesus was from accounts from people who wrote these accounts of the gospels to tell who Jesus was. And so in writing this book and in writing what he's writing, this will make sense um, to those of you who, who know even just the smallest bit of, 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 of Jewish culture and Jewish history. In writing this, Matthew likely has in mind Jewish converts, which basically is just a fancy way of saying Jews that are now following Jesus. And so he's writing this. It's not, it shouldn't be understand, understood so much as like the epistles of Paul, where it's like a letter written to like a, a church, but Paul or uh, Matthew is writing this with Jews in his mind that this is who he's trying to convince the Jews that Jesus really is, or whether it's Jewish converts, it could be these are Jews that Matthew hopes to see begin following Jesus. And so maybe it's like an apologetic. It's like, like, hey, here's who Jesus is, and here's who we believe him to be. And so Matthew himself, let's talk a little bit about who Matthew is. That's an important piece to know. Matthew himself is a Jew who, as we see, I believe it's in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus calls Matthew... Um, Matthew's a tax collector, which means that Matthew is a, a Jewish person who's, who's working for the Roman government. Jews didn't like those people, especially of their own, because they were traitors. And so in Mark and in Luke, Jesus, we see accounts there of Jesus calling a tax collector named Levi. And it's believed by, by many or most, really, that this Levi in, in Mark and in, John, and in Luke 
is actually Matthew, that Levi is the, the Hebrew name of Matthew, and that Matthew is the Greek name, kind of like the Paul-Saul thing, which, by the way, just real quick, for, this is for free. You know that Paul didn't change his name to Saul, right? After Paul's conversion, he didn't change his, or, so, sorry, Saul didn't change his name to Paul. You know that, right? He didn't change his name. Now, he started going by a different name, but Saul and Paul were both his names. One was his Greek name, and one was his Hebrew name. And so once he was saved and he was called to preach the gospel to the Greeks, he went by his Greek name, Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name, who he was known among the Jews, and Paul. And so it was, just, it was not so much a, a change in identity as much as just a change in his mission. It's kind of, kind of who, he was, who he was after. So kind of the same thing here with Matthew and Levi. Uh, Matthew may have been his, his Greek name, who he went by as a tax collector, and Levi was, was who he was as a, as a Hebrew or as, as a Jew. And so here you have a, a Jewish man who is now following Jesus, and he's writing an account of Jesus. And what he is saying, as, as, as I hope I've already said clearly, is established out of the gate and is something that would have resonated deeply with a Jewish context, that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So here's the deal. For most of us, that doesn't mean what it would have meant. To, in fact, I don't know for any of us if, if that really would have, if it meant for us what it would have meant to them. Because they would have heard that and thought, wow, that's a, that's a mighty big claim. And we're going to get to why that is in just a little bit. But here's the ultimate theme of the book of Matthew. If you're taking notes, you can just write this. Jesus is king. That's, the, that's what Matthew's trying to communicate to, to, to the people who are reading this, including us today that Jesus really is the king. And so if what I said is true, that there is a ton that rests on this son of David, son of Abraham, then here's the question that you are asking, or at least should be asking, and it's this, why? Like, why is it so heavy? Why is that so weighty? And why do we need to know this? So Matthew seemingly thought it was important for this to be known, and is the angle that he took in his particular account. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them are kind of addressing a different angle of who Jesus is. Jesus is unchanging, but Jesus is the king. Jesus is the son of God. He is the son of man. Jesus is, Jesus is a lot of things. And each gospel writer is communicating a different truth about who Jesus is. And so this is the angle that Jesus is king that Matthew is writing. Don't forget that, Okay. We've got 28 chapters ahead of us, and we cannot forget that theme, that Jesus is the king. And so let's answer these questions, why? Why does Matthew uh, pose this, and why is this so important to us, and why do we need to know this? Let's just address that from a really practical standpoint. The first thing that we address is just our view of Scripture. Like, why do we need to... Why is there a long list of somewhat irrelevant names to us and how in the world is it supposed to impact my life? Well, we hold to a view of scripture that is inspired and sufficient. In fact, let's answer this first in like a, in like a high up way, kind of like a systematic way, how we'd answer this. We're, we're taking a long way to where we're going today, but there's some really important stuff here. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, I'm reading this from the Christian Standard Bible, says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God 
may be complete for every, equipped for every good work. So why is this genealogy important? Because it is the inspired word of God and it is profitable for us to know. And so, if, so the next question you're asking is, okay, well, you're gonna have to show me how, Nate. You're gonna have to show me how this is important and significant for me because I'm just, I'm just not seeing it. Well, we're gonna get there. But Matthew answers the question of why we need to know this, but more broadly, the scriptures answer the question of why we need to know this. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and for all of these things. And so this isn't today's passage. And so we're not gonna dive into all of it. Rather, we are reminded in it that there is something divine in what Matthew is writing. And so, hey, hey, take a deep breath with me. Come on, let's do it. Even those of you who don't like taking commands from people, do it. So here's the deal. There's something in today's text that we need to know about God. Can I hear amen? There's something in today's text that Matthew is teaching us, that God himself is teaching us about who God is. Something in this text today, the point of the text, something in this text is profitable to us. Something in this text teaches us. Hey, can I just tell you this? Something in this text today is going to rebuke and correct, as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says. Something in this text will rebuke and correct some of our perceptions about who God is. It will. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. Um, something in this text is going to disciple us. Did you know that, did you know that like, discipleship, I mean, some of you will say, duh, but, but maybe some, in some of our modern context for discipleship, we, we sometimes forget this. And so when we think of discipleship, as we should, we think, I'm just being discipled by someone, someone older than me or, or someone stronger in the faith. Did you, know that, did you know the word of God disciples us, that as you're in it, like the word disciples you? The word is a, is, is a disciple maker. And so something in this text today is discipling us in our pursuit of being more like Jesus. And this text today, let's just be honest and just call it like it is, this text today is prime support for 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, because it feels like this isn't inspired. This isn't helpful for me. This isn't profitable for me. Oh, but just wait. But here's the deal. If you're wondering how in the world this might apply to a lengthy list of names, you're not alone. But that leads us to another reason why we need to know this. And it actually just poses a question because I think this is what Matthew's getting at and the gospel writers are getting at. And it's this, who is Jesus? Well, if you just like, if you're like, well, I have, the, I have the book right here so I can tell you he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. No, Matthew's gonna dig a lot deeper than this. The question that Matthew's trying to answer is, is who is Jesus? So you're, maybe some of you still aren't following me, but Matthew's going to get to a place and we are going to get to a place as we study this book that we have to answer who is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus in, in my life? And so this, is a, this question of who is Jesus is a question that Matthew most certainly is trying to answer. I mean, we, we see that. He, he literally says, this is who Jesus is. And so he's answering that question. All the gospels are attempting to answer this. In fact, we'll see later in Matthew 16 that Jesus himself asked this question. Who do people say that the son of man is? It's an important question. 
And so this is a book written within a specific context. It is a question being addressed in an effort to confirm who Jesus is. But while that is the case, that there's a context and there is a crowd for this book, it is the case for us today that we must all be settled on who Jesus is. We gotta be settled in on that. So the question was before the first, the question that was before the first hearers, however many years ago this was, some, some maybe two decades after the life of Jesus, the question that was before them is the same question before us today, is who is Jesus? And so as, we've got, as we go through the book of Matthew, we've got to wrestle with and we've got to answer that question. You've gotta answer it for yourself. You've got to let the word disciple you into who Jesus is. Some of you, some of us, me included, have, have wonky perceptions of who Jesus is. And the word through the book of Matthew will disciple us out of that and into what is right if we will submit ourselves to it. And so basically, maybe, like, maybe some of the questions that come from who is Jesus is, is Jesus just a commodity to us? Is Jesus just a means to an end? Is Jesus a prop? Or does Jesus really have authority over the most deeply held things that we have in our life? And that's what Matthew's going to pose us with. And so what I wanted to do this morning is take time to really dig into verse one. Here's the deal. It's gonna be a little bit, it's gonna be a little bit, I'm not, a, I'm not an overly smart guy, but it's gonna be a little bit heady this morning. It's gonna be a little bit like, there's just gonna, it's just gonna be some history and like, okay, like, just tell me what I need to do. Tell me, tell me what I need to know. But what I want to really do is take time to dig into verse one, but then show us how what follows it confirms this massive statement that's in verse one. So before I do that, I want to share a story. I, some of you remember the Oberly family. Uh, they, they attended Grace Harbor a couple years ago for a little while. Um, actually had some interaction with this morning. I, I just emailed them. I was like, hey, like the Lord has just laid you guys on my heart and like your, your testimony is something that has impacted me deeply and I'm just, I love you and I, and I wanna like encourage you. Um, and, and, and here's the story that Evan and Heather share. I don't, think they, I don't think they'd mind me answering this. They didn't tell me I could, but they're not here and so too bad. Um, it's a testimony of salvation. Um, Evan and Heather were walking through a, a difficult time in their life um, while living in Florida. Um, they grew up actually in Norman, Oklahoma. Uh, they grew up not far from here, like Bible Belt, USA, right? Um, and and I may get this I may get this wrong. I'll I'll go I'll go too much rather than too little. Like they may have stepped foot in a church two or three times their whole lives before being adults. Well, when they became adults, they moved to Florida, and they were kind of walking through some stuff, and they just showed up at a church one day. They showed up at a church. And I think they were living in Tampa. Sarah, you're their neighbor, Tampa or Orlando? Yeah, so they were in Tampa or Orlando. Yeah, they were just walking through some of these, so they just said, like, we're just gonna go to church. And when they showed up at church for, for one of the very first times ever in their life, the way that they shared their story is just this, like, the preacher was just preaching a series on who Jesus was. And within weeks, Evan and Heather both just gave their life to Jesus because they were enamored and they were captivated by who this Jesus was. And here's the deal. Like, they didn't have any background. They didn't have any religious background. Like, like the gospel's not, I mean, 
some people would argue is like the gospel is not contagious. Like you don't just catch the gospel. Like they were inundated in the gospel culture, but like they, they had no exposure to what the gospel really was. And they just said like the, the preacher just preached the gospel. In fact, it was a series specifically on Jesus in the gospels in the Bible. And we, and we gave our heart to Jesus and we are following him to this day. And so that's why I believe, man, I've never forgot that story. They shared it with me like two years ago. I've never forgotten the story. And that's, why, that's what I think is at stake here, church family. That's what I think is at stake here in us answering this question of who is Jesus? And so let's look at verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So I'm not a Greek language guy, but I think it's really significant that we be aware of how this verse sounds in the original Greek. So like just bare bones, the way that, the way that Matthew would have written this sentence says this, book of Genesis of Jesus Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. That's the way that it sounds in the original language. Thankfully, we have modern translators that translate faithfully into, into language that we can understand. But this is how Matthew would have written this. The book of Genesis of Jesus Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And so again, we've been talking about the Jewish people. They had been waiting for this. Their fathers knew that there was someone coming. They knew that someone was coming. They knew this even in the midst of, of suffering. They knew this in the midst of centuries and centuries of perpetual disobedience. Like there's literally places throughout the Old Testament where the, the people are just like, we can't keep the covenant of God. When will the one who can arrive? And so they had been waiting on this. In fact, this book, Matthew, is settled into a spot within the scriptures that comes after 400 years of silence, some, sometimes called the intertestamental period. So like that, this blank page between the Old and New Testament right here represents, represents 400 years of silence. I don't know what all went on during those 400 years. There's people that do, people that have ideas. Regardless, this was a time in history where God was silent, and where the people were, but we know the people still would have been longing and they were looking and they were expecting. And Matthew writes in such language here in verse one that says, I mean, he literally says the book of Genesis of Jesus Messiah. Matthew is literally saying there's a new beginning that has come, a new creation a new, something new has started. I love this. A, a new man who will not be disobedient in a garden, but a man who will be obedient even in a desert, as we'll see in Matthew chapter four. A new beginning is here. Something that these people had longed and waited and expected and anticipated and had faith in. Finally, Jesus shows up. And then the, next, the very next words, answers the question, okay, who is he talking about? Who's the man? Who's the new beginning? Local verse one says, Jesus Christ. So Matthew here names who it is that marks this new beginning, Jesus. Jesus is, is a name that's familiar to the Jewish readers. Jesus in the Jewish language was Joshua. We see, we see Joshua in the Old Testament, and it means his name meant in the Old Testament, Yahweh saves. 
that the Lord saves, that the Lord is bringing salvation. In fact, in verse 21 of Matthew, if, you're, if you have your copy of your Bible, just look over at verse 21. What does it say? God says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You shall call his name Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. Joshua means the Lord saves, Yahweh saves. You you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so it was Joshua in the Old Testament, if you remember, Joshua who was commissioned by the Lord to take the Israelites into the promised land. You know, Moses like went in, talked to Pharaoh, delivered the people of God, walked through, and then God's basically just like, Hey, Moses, like your, your time stops now, handing it over to Joshua. Joshua, you're going to take the people of God into, into the land that I have promised them. And Matthew here is saying that Jesus is the one that God sends to deliver his people, not from a physical slavery into a physical land, but from spiritual bondage into eternal life. And so he's a, he's a as, as some writers would say, he's the new and better Joshua. Jesus is the, the new and the better Joshua who not is there to deliver people from a physical enslavement, but from a spiritual bondage into eternal life. Sounds great, doesn't it? Like surely these people just believed it, right? Like these people were like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. Well, we'll see later that this wasn't quite as easy for them to understand. So if Jesus has a meaning of God saves, then Matthew adding Christ to, to Jesus, Jesus Christ, is his way of saying that this is the Jesus whom God saves. Hey, there, there may have and there likely was other people named Joshua throughout the Old Testament. There was, other, others, named, there was others named Joshua in, in, the, in the Jewish culture, but Jesus comes and he's saying, this is the, the Joshua, this is the Yeshua. And that's why he adds Christ. Christ is not just like a last name. By the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a, is a title for who Jesus is. And so he says, this is Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who will save the pe- his people from their sins. And so this is what it actually says. Remember in the, in the original language when we said the, the, the Genesis of, the, uh, how does it say? Book of Genesis of Jesus Messiah. So in the original language, it actually says Jesus Messiah. And so throughout the entire Old Testament, church family, throughout the entire the Old Testament, even as early as Genesis chapter three, a promise is given that one would come to deliver God's people, one who was anointed, a savior. Along with that, there were, there were others along the way that claimed to be the anointed one. But this claim by Matthew and Jesus himself also later in the, in the, in the book is a massive claim. If this is to be claimed, if it is to be claimed that I am the Jesus that you've been looking for, and I am the Jesus who is the Messiah, who is the one to deliver his people from their oppression. We know from their sins, but they were looking for one to deliver them from oppression and and all of those things. If this is the claim, there better be something big happen to confirm it, you know, like miracles or a resurrection or something, right? Like there better be something that, that... that supports this, this massive claim. Now, the Jews' understanding of the Messiah was, was complicated, as we've, we've said, and understandably so. Remember, we, we can't get into all of it today, but we will throughout our time in Matthew that the Jews were a people that had a deep faith and a devotion to the Lord. You know that? Like, they're easy to pick on, right? Like, we see the Pharisees, and like, we, we kind of love to see Jesus' like one-two jab of the Pharisees, but like, at the end of the day, it's kind of us. 
But at the same time, it's not us because the faith and the devotion that these people had in the, in the promises of God was deep. Man, it was, it was deep. If we, were, if we were half as devoted and obedient to the Lord as, as they were, and by the way, that they still are, many, many devout Jews around us, they're still just as devoted to obedience. Hey, obedience is not a bad thing. You know that, right? Obedience isn't opposed to grace. Like, we're not, we're not licentious. We, we're people who obey the Lord because he has called us to do things. But, but if we were half as devoted and obedient to the Lord as they were and as they are, we'd be in pretty good shape. Which, by the way, the gospel is that none of us are in good shape and Jesus saves us anyways. And so it's kind of a, just a play on words. But they had been promised a deliverer and they were continually caught up in a way of thinking that the deliverer, deliverer that was coming was one that would establish some sort of like political social command that, 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 that the savior was coming and he's gonna, gonna wipe out those, those big old meanie head Romans and, and just, and just kind of free us up to rule the world the way that we want. But what we hear here in Jesus Christ is that his deliverance is not necessarily a deliverance from earthly suffering, but from earthly death, but from eternal death, deliverance from sin. So in saying Jesus Messiah or Jesus Christ, Matthew is emphatically saying, this is the one. He's here. Look no further than what has been sent from God, from heaven. And as we see in, in this chapter and in, in, the, in the beginning of Luke, he is sent what? As a baby. That guy's not gonna deliver us from our, from our, from our oppressors, is he? Is what, they're, is what they're asking. And so the question for us is, do we believe that Jesus saves? Do we believe in that Jesus? Do we believe that Jesus saves, that Jesus alone? And so then what follows, man, we're like halfway through verse one. Let's keep going. The son of David, the son of Abraham. So I believe that the son of David and the son of Abraham, and I think we should see this too, is not only there as a matter of fact, so Matthew is, is stating this as a matter of fact, that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's a matter of fact, is what Matthew's trying to say. But it also has implications for us. So if, is this, if this whole genealogical list down here kind of flows out of the son of David, son of Abraham, this is just Matthew's way of connecting Jesus back to David and Abraham. This is his way of connecting him back to those people that he has just said. And so this has for us matter of fact, but also implications. And so I want us to see that Matthew is, what Matthew is pointing to and highlighting this. And then I want to give us just two implications on how we understand who Jesus is today and how we are to submit to him. So just as a matter of fact, that Jesus is the son of David. So we see the Lord's covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 and 13. And what, what God establishes there with David is that there is a promise that one would come from the, from the line of David that would rule forever. And so most of you probably know this, but when one king dies, the, the next guy takes over, right? When he dies, the next guy takes over. Like it doesn't matter if he's seven or if he's 91, the next guy take the, 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 the next in the line takes over. And so here's what 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13 says. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body. 
Some versions say, who will be your offspring. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David, the great king, will one day die. But from his body, his offspring, one would come who would not pass on his reign, but would reign forever. And so one thing about the scriptures and the covenants and the, the, the fulfillments and the prophecies is that, is that in each of them that God makes with people, there's typically both immediate and future fulfillment. And so the context of what the covenant that God is making here is fulfilled both in David's son. Anybody know who that is? David's son, Solomon. It's fulfilled in Solomon, and it's also fulfilled in the future, in Jesus. We know that because Solomon's reign did not last forever, did it? Solomon died. He gave us that, that, we think he gave us that really beautiful book of Ecclesiastes. It says like, hey, you're gonna die, everything stinks. Just trust the Lord. Um, some people don't think that Solomon wrote, but that's neither here nor there. But there is both immediate and future fulfillment in play. So immediately, again, the context is fulfilled in Solomon, but since Solomon died, this must have a more significant fulfillment that was not immediate, but one that would be fulfilled in one who would never die. So when God says, I'm going to establish your throne forever, that's not just some idea. That is based upon the resurrection of Jesus. That is based upon the fact that though Jesus did die, he did not stay dead. And if Jesus is still alive and he comes from the line of David, as we see lined out in Matthew chapter one, if Jesus is still alive and he'll never die, guess what? He will reign forever. And so the indication and the claim here is that Jesus is that one, Jesus. He's the one. He's the one that God promised to David. And here's how he connects to David. We're not gonna read through the whole list of names. We can do that. And it's important, I promise but, but that's, what, that's why I say that everything flows out of verse one, that, that, that this is Matthew just tying Jesus back to David and to Abraham. But Jesus is the one from the genealogical line of David who was promised, and Jesus is the king. The Jews believed this. The Jews the, the believed that there was a king coming. Not all of them believed that Jesus was that one. And they longed for this, and they waited for this. And Matthew says, this is it. Here he is. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show my millennial here, but like you guys have seen the meme of the guy just like, you know, like, he's the one. Like, it's really, it's really funny. Jesus is the Messiah who is promised, who is the promised heir to the throne. The, sec, the next thing, we're, we're at the end of the verse, y'all, and then, and then we're getting into the implications. The son of Abraham. Everybody take a deep breath. Sorry, this is a lot of information. I told some guys this morning this was, this, was, this was gonna be packed. So he's the son of Abraham. The Jewish faith was rooted not only in the promise of a king in, through, through the line of David, but in a covenant that preceded the Davidic covenant. So the covenant that God made with his people is not only rooted in, in royalty, but it was rooted in a covenant that God made with Abraham. At the time, he was Abram. Not a covenant that promised a king in a royal line of Jewish people that would have implications only for Jewish people so that you realize that like pretty much to the, maybe not, to, to, to most of the world, this royal promise wouldn't have been that significant. But to the Jews, it would have been deeply significant. 
The covenant that God established with Abraham, though, is significant to the whole world. It's significant to everyone. And let me show you how, because this is not a, a royal covenant that, that mainly has implications for Jewish people, but this covenant with Abraham is a covenant that would have implications for all people. And this is why, we, why I say that, because in Genesis 12, one through three, it says this, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and, I will, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So remember that at the time that this promise is made, Abraham is aging. And when Isaac is promised later on, I believe in uh, chapter 17, that when Isaac is promised, Abraham and Sarah are even older. They're, they're even older. And so Abraham's like, God, you're giving me this, this covenant that you're going like, to make my name great. I'm going to be the father. Of me. Like, I don't even have a child. And like, I'm getting kind of old here. When are you going to come through? But again, I, I believe this is an instance of both immediate and future fulfillment. First, God fulfills his covenant with Abraham through his son, Isaac, but ultimately through Jesus. And so in this opening verse, let's recap, Matthew is essentially saying this, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. Here is your king, and here is your hope. He is your king, he's the son of David, and he is your hope, and not your hope only, but the hope of the whole world. Every name in the genealogy that follows points directly to that truth. So verses two through 17, Matthew lays out how they get to where they are. And so what are the implications of this? What are the implications of Jesus being our forever reigning king and our hope? Well, if he's the king, let, let me just, this is how this applies to us today. There've been a lot of lousy kings throughout history. We have a lot of lousy kings and rulers and people in office that are lousy today. We've got, a, we've got a, a lot of those things. But if, if Jesus truly is the forever reigning king whose throne is not in danger of being removed, then he's a good king. He's worth trusting. He's in control. He's powerful. The implication for us then, I believe, boils down to submission. Boils down to, have you submitted yourself to Jesus fully? If, if he is the one who is the king who will reign forever and his throne is not in danger of, of ever being removed from him, have you submitted yourself to him? I'll say, I'll say this this morning, um, that as many issues that our culture has and, and as big of a mess that things are, that one of the greatest underlying culprits, you'll, you'll, you're gonna hear like, if you heard 10 people say this thing, they'd all say 10 different things the underlying culprits. I'm pretty convinced that one of those main culprits is just an issue of authority. Like it's just an issue of who do I submit my life to? Who has the greatest authority in my life? And let's be real, for most people it's self, right? For most people, the greatest authority that, that exists in this world is me. I get to make my own decisions. I, I make the calls. I, I get to be the one who has the highest level authority. And here's the deal. 
I've, I've hinted at like politics and social stuff, but th- this isn't an issue for any particular po- political par- party or social idea. In fact, Jesus is going to jump over, jump all over all of us in a few chapters in the Sermon on the Mount. And, 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 how we, and how we understand and view the kingdom, it's not a kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom that's going to fit neatly into any of our preferences. Like he's gonna step on some of us at different times and call us to say, who is your authority? And then here's the blessing. Here's the implication of Jesus not only being the king. That's the implication of Jesus being the king is that have you submitted your life to him? But what is the implication of him being a blessing? So this is, this is a point that could launch us into a whole new sermon, but we have to see how Matthew intentionally connects Jesus as a blessing for all people. So namely, we are gonna kind of get into the, to the genealogy here. Namely, in that is Matthew's inclusion of the women who are listed here. So did you notice that? That like there's a, there's a bunch of names of men, but then you see Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. You even see Mary. This is the implication that that has on the truth of Jesus being a blessing to all people. First of all, it's important for us to understand that including women in a lineage especially a lineage of kings, when you're trying to establish a king, that including women in a lineage was rare. In fact, when they were included, it historically only happened, it only happened in two cases most of the time. It happened when they ensured the purity of a genealogical line, and it happened when they enhanced the dignity of a genealogical line. Without diving into each of their personal stories, none of these women accomplished either of those things. None of them ensure the purity of the line of Jesus from a, from a surface level. None of them enhance the dignity of a genealogical line. And if you wanna know why, you're gonna have to just go study the stories of all of these, of all of these women. Like, why would Matthew not include Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah? Because he could have just as easily included the, uh, or at least added those names. Yet he includes a list of women who are mostly all Gentile women so they don't enhance the purity. They don't ensure the purity of the genealogical line. There's a lot of intermarriage and a lot of things going on, but there's lots of reason why these women are included. But probably for the same reasons, your name is included. You're like, why are these women included? Well, they're included because of the same reasons yours are. Because God is a God who's full of mercy and grace, and he is sovereign, and he is lavish with his grace that he extends to us. It's, it's a witness to the sovereignty of God that God's mercy is deep and that it forgives and redeems sinners and wide that it welcomes all people, even Gentiles. That's what Matthew's trying to accomplish here, that Jesus is the promised blessing that would be a blessing to all peoples, not just some, but all. And so The implications of that for us to consider is this. How big is God's grace to us? How big is God's grace to you? Are you, as we've said this before, are we a, if God can save so-and-so, he can save anybody? Or do we have the right gospel perspective that says, if God can save me, he can save anybody? The, the, The miracle is not that God can save Tamar or Rahab or Ruth or Bathsheba. The miracle is that God could step into my mess and save me. And if we're not captivated by that, then we are missing what the gospel really is. 
That's what the gospel really is. Do we believe that God's covenant, in God's covenant to send one who would be a blessing to all nations and all people, or do we think it's only for a select few? No, Jesus, God has said that Jesus is the one who I will bless the world through. And Matthew is pressing us with this question when he's providing this information about who Jesus is, that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. In fact, I would say that this boring genealogy is a thorough, intentional presentation of the gospel. Like the gospel is just right here in the genealogy. You see that, right? Like you see, like, here's the gospel. See that? This is the Jesus in whom the gospel is calling us to place our faith and our trust and our hope. This Jesus is our salvation. He is our king and he is our hope. And in Jesus, as we've seen in the text, we have a new beginning. Not to be too like, you know, new age, but like we do. Like it's a new beginning in Jesus. In fact, the text literally says that, a new beginning. We have a worthy king and we have a profound and eternal blessing in the hope of Jesus as our savior. And so that's what today is all about. The first week of Advent is hope, that we have someone who comes and fulfills the longing, fulfills the hope that we all have. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word and thank you that your, your word teaches us even, even when we're not looking or seeking or, or even expect, expect it. And so Lord, would you help us to see that the facts of who you are in a way that would, that would drive us to change the way that we view you and change the way that we view those around us. We love you, Father. We come to the table now. We come to, to the Lord's table knowing that, that you have reached down and saved me, that you have saved us. We come to you with empty hands, Father, knowing that as we walk away, from this table this morning, we have, we have hands that are filled because of, because of what you have done within the hearts of those who you love. We pray these things in your name. Amen.